This is a fictional story written by me. It's a story about the inescapable connection between who you are and what you did. This podcast tells the stories of people we empathize with or root for. Sometimes because of what they did and sometimes in spite of it. I'm Caleb Carter. This is Antihero. Today is my son's eighth birthday. It's a great day for our family, a special day, but also a painful one. As he opened his gifts, I kissed him on the forehead and told him he's blessed to see another year, as I've done every year. Only this year is different. This birthday, number eight, is a reminder of something more. And my son can't figure out why his dad is crying. One day I'm sure I'll tell him, but not today. Not now. To him, I'm still super dad, and I want to keep it this way for just a little while longer. When you think about it, cops and surgeons are very similar. We love and praise the good ones because they save lives. And we are very unforgiving with the bad ones because, well, they take lives. I joined the Oklahoma police force after college because I promised my dad and grandfather I would carry on the family tradition after my wrestling career was over. I went to Oklahoma State on a wrestling scholarship, and for a while, wrestling was the only thing I ever cared about. It taught me the importance of discipline, self-pride, humility, and it taught me about pain. Running seven miles a day, five days a week, so that your lungs can withstand the exertion that you put them through, that's pain. Dislocating your shoulder in the first minute of the first match of the biggest tournament of your life, and still going on to compete in five more matches. That's pain. Having four knee surgeries in the span of five years to repair things that you know are just going to tear again. That's pain. Pain and wrestling go hand in hand. I know physical pain very well, and it's easy to deal with because you know it's temporary. I know emotional pain, too. Like when you lose the biggest match of your life because the other guy was just better than you. You didn't make a mistake or lose on a technicality. You never really had a chance. Or when your best friend dies in a car crash, not only was he the best cop you knew, but the best person, and his life is over in an instant. I know emotional pain very well. It's a lot tougher to deal with than physical pain because you don't always know when it'll end, but most of the time, like physical pain, it's temporary. I could go on about all of my painful experiences, and I'm sure they wouldn't be much different than most of yours. Life and pain go hand in hand. Over time, we get better acclimated to it and better at dealing with the physical and emotional pain that life feeds us. And at a certain point, we feel like we can pretty much handle anything life throws at us. I know I did. But there's a different type of pain that exists. One wrestling couldn't have ever prepared me for. One life couldn't have ever prepared me for. It's not temporary like the physical and the emotional. You can't simply wait it out. And it's not permanent either. We have a way of getting used to even the permanent. No, this type of pain is much worse. It's persistent. You can't outlast it. You can't plan for it. You can't get used to it. Sometimes it's here and sometimes it's not. But it's never gone. And it's never leaving. 
I recently heard that only 54% of the people in the United States are confident in the police's ability to handle situations fairly and correctly. So almost half of the people in this country, the people I worked to serve, don't trust me. Going to work every day knowing that you aren't trusted by half the people you work for is hard to accept. Very hard. But it's not the hardest thing to accept. The hardest part is that we are reactive. That is to say, we don't stop bad things from happening today. After something bad happens today, we find out who did it so that they can't do more bad stuff tomorrow. In my experience, I can say that the overwhelming majority of people, let's say 99%, are good. They don't want to take advantage of anyone. They don't want to do harm to anyone. And on the surface, 99% sounds like a more than acceptable amount. But on my first day at the police academy, I was given a math lesson. There are over 320 million people in the United States. If 1% of those people seek to do harm, then we have over 3.2 million harm seekers. But we can't do anything about it until they've had an opportunity to identify themselves as part of the 1%, sometimes multiple opportunities. So at any given time, there are 3.2 million people out there looking to put a dent in someone's life. And we have to sit and wait until they've done so and just hope that that dent isn't too big. Naturally, most of the job consists of run-ins with the 99%, the good people who get involved in minor disputes, make small mistakes, or commit traffic violations. Now, these are good and honest people, but nobody ever thinks they were speeding. Everybody thinks they made it through the light before it turned red or that they came to a complete stop at the stop sign. Sometimes they're right and get a ticket anyway. Sometimes they're wrong and still only get a warning. You see, I'm human, not a robot. I have emotions that sometimes influence my decisions. I've pulled people over and not written them tickets because they were nice, because they were driving one of my favorite cars, or because they reminded me of someone I knew. I've pulled people over and given them tickets because they were rude, because they were driving one of my least favorite cars, or because they reminded me of someone I knew. But the world has a way of balancing itself out. The same reason I would give you a ticket may be the same reason another cop wouldn't, and vice versa. It all comes down to discretion. But traffic stops aren't where discretion really matters. A ticket here or there may be annoying or cause frustration in your life, but that's really all there is to them. Discretion matters most when the stakes are high. It was a Saturday morning. I'd worked the overnight shift and I was heading home when a red Camaro sped past me on the freeway. It was a male driver and as far as I could tell, he was in the car alone. He made the next exit and I followed. The first car I ever bought for myself was a red Camaro. When I hit my lights, I'd already decided I was only going to give him a warning. He pulled over and I sat in my car for a few minutes while I got the information back from his license plate. The car wasn't stolen, the registration was current, so was the insurance. Just a standard run-in with the 99 percenter. I opened my door and stepped out, on my way to compliment his car and tell him to slow down a little. But we never had that conversation. When I was halfway between my car and his, the door swung open and the man stepped out and aimed a pistol at me. He fired four shots. Two missed, one hit my shoulder, and one hit me in the chest. The force of the shots knocked me to the ground. He turned and got back into his car. I'd never been shot before, and I didn't react in the way I had imagined I would. 
and I'd imagine this day hundreds of times. When you work a job like this, most people think of you as a protector. But some people think of you as a freedom snatcher. And you know, without a doubt, you'll one day come across someone who's willing to kill the freedom snatcher in order to maintain theirs. As he drove off, I managed to get into a seated position and my first thought was to shoot at the car. But a rule I learned a long time ago flashed into my mind. Never shoot into a place if you don't know the full extent of who occupies it. I dismissed this rule and fired three shots before radioing in what had just happened. I don't know exactly why I chose to shoot into that car. I could say I wanted to stop a dangerous man from getting away and causing harm to someone else. And that sounds legit. Or I could say it was just a reaction, something I did without thinking, something I did in shock. But that wouldn't be true. I thought this through. Honestly, I shot at that car because I was pissed. Pissed that someone who didn't even know me, someone I was just going to give a warning, had just tried to take my life. When I woke up in the hospital, my wife and son were there and both of them had been crying. The bulletproof vest had stopped the bullet from entering my chest, but the other bullet had torn through my shoulder. I'd be out for a while and there'd be some pain to overcome, but physically I'd be fine. The man who shot me was caught at the same hospital that I'd been taken to. He'd driven there himself. Not because of his injuries, all of my shots had missed him and only one of my shots even hit the car. Weeks prior, his wife had been granted custody of their son after their divorce, a divorce brought on by his heavy drinking, gambling, and domestic violence. After the divorce, she'd chosen to move from Colorado back to Oklahoma where her family was. Her ex-husband begged and pleaded her not to take his son to another state, eventually upgrading those pleas to threats. And he'd followed through on those threats by driving to Oklahoma with a gun and two cases of beer. He beat his ex-wife to the point of unconsciousness, then put his son in the car and drove off. He was on his way to Colorado when I pulled him over. My bullet had gone through the back window and through the passenger seat. The passenger seat that I was sure was unoccupied. But it wasn't. His ex-wife would recover from her injuries, but her son would not. I killed a seven-year-old boy. It's been two years and the only time I don't think about this fact is when I'm sleeping. Well, that's not completely true. Sometimes it follows me into my dreams. I have to live with this for the rest of my life. I made a mistake. But like surgeons, cops don't get to make mistakes. The cost is too high. I'm in no way the victim here. And if I am the victim, I'm the victim of my own bad choices. Before this, I was a respected member of the community, one of the good cops. I'd even won awards. Now I've been deemed unfit to protect and serve, pending psychological evaluation. I should probably be grateful that I avoided prison, but my mind didn't. I'd heard of post-traumatic stress disorder before, but I'd never taken the time to look into it because it never applied to me. So in my first court-mandated therapy session, when my therapist told me I was suffering from PTSD, I asked her how long it would take for me to get over it. She realized I didn't understand. So she read me a definition. 
A condition of persistent mental and emotional stress occurring as a result of injury or severe psychological shock, typically involving disturbance of sleep and constant vivid recall of the experience, with dulled responses to others and to the outside world. She went on to spend the last 45 minutes of our session explaining this definition to me and explaining what I should expect in the coming years. I'll spare you the details. I can sum it up a lot better than she did. PTSD works like this. You collect heavy stones and lay them out onto the shore of a beach. You take those heavy stones and you spell out the words, I killed a seven-year-old boy. Then under the stones, you use your finger in the sand to carve out the reasons why. Because I didn't know he was in the car. Because his dad tried to kill me. Because I made a mistake. Because I'm human. And under those words, you carve out the names of the lives you've saved while you've been on the police force. William, Katie, Lynn, Jamie, Alex, Richard, Paula, Lauren. And under those names, you carve out all the names of your family and friends who say they forgive you and that it was a mistake brought on by circumstances outside of your control and that one mistake doesn't overshadow a life of good deeds. And when you're done, you have what amounts to an impressive diagram saying what you did and why you did it and showing all the lives you saved and all the people on your side who still look at you as the man you thought you were. And it all makes sense. You're a good cop. You're a good person, a good husband, father, and friend. And everything is okay. You take a mental picture of this diagram and you imprint it on your brain for safekeeping. But over time, waves pound the shore again and again and Your hand-carved diagram, that impressive list of words, names, reasons, excuses, all the things that represent the good in you, they get washed away. But the stones, the stones remain, and they'll be there for forever. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you rated it and left a review. It helps bring more visibility to the podcast and lets us know how we can improve. For more information about the show, visit us at antiheropodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at antihero underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about us and don't forget to subscribe. This is Antihero.